embrace the profane. That's really what sin is. And the tragedy of sin is that you move from, in the Garden of Eden, happiness to heartache, from trust to deceit, from wholeness to brokenness, and from life to death. And if that's how the story ended, we would all just pack up our bags and go home incredibly depressed. But I love Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, which says, But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. Life because of the resurrection of Jesus. And I love those two words, but God. I remember talking with somebody years ago, and they had made a mess of their life. And as we were going through it, I said, you know, God can forgive you. God wants to forgive you. And they said, God will never forgive me for the things that I have done. So I I believe that God will. And I was a brand new Christian. And so they looked at me and they said, I'll tell you what, I am going to cancel my meetings tomorrow. I'm driving to the first church that I see. I'm going to talk with the pastor. I'm going to tell him everything that I've done. And if he says God will forgive me, then I will give my life to Jesus. You know what I did that night? I prayed, and I prayed, God, don't let him go to some crazy nut job. Let him go to a good pastor. And he heard those words, but God. But God will forgive, and heartache can give way to happiness. Trust can be restored, and death, the Bible says, will soon be destroyed. Listen, if you're feeling overwhelmed, maybe by your sin, If guilt is weighing you down, maybe you see yourself as undervalued or even worthless because of the way that people have treated you. Listen, but God. God is so rich in mercy. God loves you beyond your comprehension. He has the ability and the desire to give you life through the resurrection of Jesus, and God is able to make a way when we see no way forward. And that really is the heart of what we're going to look at in Esther. I have three points I want to highlight for you. The first is that you are gifted for the call. The second is that you will need courage in the call. And the third, there is providence in it all. So the historical book of Esther begins around 480 B.C., And it doesn't unfold in Israel, but in Persia, which is modern-day Iran, in the capital city of Susa, or Shushan, depending on your translation. However, about 125 years earlier, the Jewish people were captured and thrust into slavery. Why? Because God had raised up a man, we know him, Jeremiah. He was a preacher of righteousness. You ever preach and feel like nobody's listening to you? One of the first times I taught, I was teaching at at a youth group. Two kids showed up. About five minutes in, they both fell asleep. (laughs) It was a rough start for everybody. But Jeremiah is preaching. Nobody's listening to him except this guy, Baruch, who's his scribe, and he gets paid to write down Jeremiah's words. And yet he was faithful to God, and he warned people, you've got to stop going the direction you're going. If you don't, consequences will come. That's always the nature of sin. You sin, and the hammer will come down. If you noticed, you can choose your sin, but you can't choose 
Your consequence? Well, the people rejected God, and they rejected God's messenger, Jeremiah, and the hammer came down, and then they went into slavery. There, at this time when Esther is unfolding, living under the reign of a king named Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. Listen to what the historian George Rawlinson writes of Ahasuerus. Quote, Proud, self-willed, amorous, careless of contravening Persian customs, reckless of human life, but not actually bloodthirsty, impetuous, facile, changeable. <laughs> Wouldn't you love to be under that kind of a dictator? This is the scene. Ahasuerus is prideful. He's power-hungry. He expected, in fact, every single person to obey his every word, including his wife. Ladies, can you imagine that? Come together. Okay, you're excited. We're going to get married. Okay, here's how it's going to go. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better or worse, richer or poorer, to obey every word that comes out of his mouth, no matter what. <laughs> you know what would happen? The human race would go extinct. <laughs> that just wouldn't happen. No way. But that's exactly what Ahasuerus did. He commands his queen Vashti to come on in, and she declines the invitation. Who knows? Maybe she was having a bad day. Maybe she wasn't feeling well. Maybe they were having a disagreement, an argument. He gets upset. You don't listen to me? He kicks her out. If you will, she's done. So he needs a new queen. He sends his servants throughout the empire. They scour the empire, and he has a qualification. Find the most beautiful virgins. That's it. Beautiful and virgin. Talk about shallow. Bring them to me, and that's where our story starts. Esther chapter 2, in verse 5, the text says, In Shushan the citadel there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away captive from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, <clears throat> his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it was, when the king's command and decree were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel, under the custody of Hegei, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace, into the care of Hegei, the custodian of the women. Now the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor, so he readily gave beauty preparations to her, besides her allowance. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the woman. Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the woman's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Mordecai, we meet this man, it's a Persian name. And it means little man. Wouldn't you love that? You're in captivity, you're already feeling a little small, and then they give you the name little man. So here's little man. He's Jewish. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, a descendant of Kish. Interesting. 
Who else was a descendant of Kish that we know of in the Bible? King Saul. Don't you love this contrast? You have King Saul, whom the Bible says stands head and shoulders above the rest, and then there's little man. Why does that happen? I don't know. As an aside, I was thinking about this. You know, your family tree doesn't need to define your future. You have Saul, who stood head and shoulders above the rest. He looked great, but he was a wreck of a king. But then you have another descendant, Mordecai, who showed great courage. Your family tree doesn't need to define your future because you have a father in heaven who loves you. And he can rewrite the story. The Bible says that he can restore the years that the locusts have eaten in church. I love that we get to share that news with people. Esther, we meet her. Her name means star, but more importantly, it's how her life started. She was orphaned. She lost both of her parents. Heartache. Her cousin Mordecai, who's obviously older, comes and adopts her and takes her in as his own daughter, and he loves her. But still, there's heartache, isn't there? You lose your parents, especially at a young age, it changes everything about your life. This is her start. And we see God's hand at work through this entire narrative. Jump down to verse 17. We learn that the king loved Esther more than all other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. And so he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther. We should know this about the king. Okay? The story unfolds, the book of Esther, with the king throwing a party that lasted 180 days. Can you imagine that? 180 days. For anybody in his empire, you want to come and celebrate? Come on. And then what does he do at the end of the 180-day party? He throws another party that lasts for seven days for his servants. He's like, hey, why not? He gets married. What does he do? He throws a party for Esther. That's what he knows how to do. It's like, what did the king do? He threw parties. That's all I know, man. Did he run the kingdom well? No, but he had epic parties. You know, it's just, that's, okay. Great way to run the nation. So the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. Now this part's good. Do you know what this means? A holiday, a tax-free time period. I find myself, God, send an Esther to the White House. Could you imagine that? That'd be fantastic. But here's the important point. She obtained grace and favor. God is the one who gives grace. In verse 9, we read that she obtained favor from the king's servant. In verse 15, we skipped over it, but she obtained favor from all who saw her. And in verse 17, she obtained grace and favor from the king. In your Bible, write down the word providence. Providence. The name of God is not mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther, but the hand of God is unmistakable. God is at work behind the scenes everywhere. 
Did God cause his people to rebel when they were still in Jerusalem? No. Did God condone the mistreatment they experienced once they were in slavery? No. But did God act to deliver his people? Yes. God is not directly responsible for the consequences of our sinful choices, but neither is he distant from the sinner. Do you remember that story, that beautiful story where a woman was brought into the midst of Jesus while he's teaching in the temple area? John chapter 8. She's caught in the very act of adultery. And she's thrust at Jesus' feet. And then the religious leaders put Jesus in a trap. The law says that she should be stoned to death. Are you going to do it, Jesus? And then what does he do? Kneels down, scribbles in the dirt. Who knows? Maybe he wrote their sins. Maybe he even wrote their secret thoughts. Maybe he even wrote the name of the man who was also caught in the act. Notice he didn't show up. Who knows? But what did he say? Whoever's without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. And they all left. The woman's in the dirt. Jesus looks up and he says to her, Woman, where are your accusers? She said, There are none, Lord. And he said, Neither do I condemn you. And this is important. He said, Go your way and what? Sin no more. We are not set free from our sin in order to continue in sin. But the concept of grace is that we can be set free from sin so that we can walk in the newness of life with Christ. God never condones, God never approves of sin. But he is willing to deliver. He is willing to draw near to the sinner. And we see that in the person of Jesus. God came near. Jesus took your sins and mine upon himself. He died in our place and he gives us the hope, the guarantee of eternal life. Little do Mordecai and Esther know at this point in time that God is working to bring salvation through their courageous actions. You see, you're gifted for the call that God has on your life. And the the wonderful thing about spiritual gifts is that it often seems like you don't feel capable. You ever felt like that? I'm not qualified. I can't do that, God. I remember when God called me to be a pastor, and it it seemed so clear to me, and there was a problem. And I remember this this very clearly. I was praying and talking to God, and I've shared this with other people, and and, and we'll see if you have the same expression as they have. But uh, I said, you know, there's, there's only one problem. And I would share this with God. God, I don't like people. And I feel like if you're going to be a pastor, you, you have to like people to some degree. And I began to pray and ask God to do that. Other people, when I share that, they're like, you don't like people? I said, no, no, no. I said that when he called me, I didn't. <laughs> and then they look at you with like glaring eyes, and you're like, and I'm still struggling with it from time to time. It's just... But here's the point, is that God equips us for the call. He, he gives us a love that we can't understand. He enables us to, to do what he calls us to do, but it's always a supernatural enabling. You're gifted for the call that God has on your life, just as Mordecai was gifted for the call to raise Esther as his own daughter and to disciple her and to mentor her and to lead her, just as Esther was gifted for the call to save the Jewish people. 
to have great courage. I should also note this. What did the king see in Esther? He saw what? Beauty. Superficial, skin deep. But there was something so much greater in Esther. And the Lord sees those things, doesn't he? Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And understand that. Going back to your value, going back to your worth, God sees. God knows. Trust what God has to say. Trust what God has to think about you. That's what matters. And listen, this is what I know about the call that God has on your life. You will need to step outside your comfort zone. You will need to do it. You will need to trust God, especially when you cannot see. What does the psalmist say? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, used to say, never trade what God has shown you in the light for what you can't see in the dark. Take what you know to be true and trust God with it, especially when you cannot see, because God still sees all. You'll also need to be selfless, not self-serving in God's call for your life. It's not about you. It's not about me. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is John chapter 3, verse 30, where John the Baptist says, he, pointing to Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. I pray, Lord, let that be the anthem of my life. May you increase and may I decrease. Because the truth is that we will never regret selflessly and courageously serving our God. You're gifted for the call, but your call is going to take courage. There are two major events that unfold between chapter 2, and we're going to pick it up in chapter 4 in just a moment. The first is that Mordecai uncovers a plot to assassinate the king. And he reveals this plot to the king. Quite literally, the king is still alive because of Mordecai. The second is that there's this character named Haman who is elevated to the position of prime minister of the Persian Empire. He's number two in command. He's also an Agagite. And if you go back and you look at the book of Exodus through Joshua, the Agagites are sworn enemies of the Jewish people. Haman hates Mordecai. And this is what I love, is that Haman demands that every time a person, or that, that he passes by a person, that they have to stop what they're doing, they have to bow down. Every time. So Haman passes by Mordecai. Everybody bows down, and Mordecai's like, I ain't doing it. Nope. Every single time. Nope, not bowing down to you, Haman. Don't you love that? He just won't do it. He doesn't go and try to beat Haman up. He's just like, no, no thanks. I'm not going to bow down to you, buddy. Keep walking. I love that. So Haman hates Mordecai. Mordecai refuses. So here's Haman's thing. He's kind of like, well, I could kill Mordecai or I could just annihilate all the Jewish people. So Haman chooses plan B. Let's come up with a plan to <laughs> annihilate the Jewish people. And that's where we pick it up in chapter 4 of verse 8. Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other people's. They don't keep the king's laws 
Therefore, it's not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, then let a decree be written that they be destroyed. What? And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded to the king's satraps and to the governors who were over each provinces, to the officials of all people, to every province according to its script, and every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring, and the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. Talk about a bad day at work. I mean, this is brutal. You imagine Mordecai, you know, heading home, maybe he's Got a wife, I don't know, and, you know, hey, honey, how was work? Well, it's a little bit rough today. Did you see Haman? Yeah, did you bow down? No, okay. Everything go okay? Well, not really. Why? Well, because rather than just killing me, he decided to come up with a plan, and he, he sent out a decree. He's going to kill everybody from our family. Huh. That's a bad day at work. You have a bad day at work? Probably not this bad. Haman's prime minister in Persia. He's delivered this royal edict again. Why? Simply because they're Jewish people. He wants them gone. He wants them done. When we look at it, we realize that sin is saturating every part of Haman's plan. It's the micro-narrative. What's going on? That Haman hates the Jewish people. That's it. He wants them gone. He wants them annihilated. He wants them destroyed. But there's also a meta-narrative, a bigger picture unfolding. And what is it? That Satan hates God's plan. Satan saturates this plan. Why? Because God is going to bring deliverance to the human race through the Jewish people in the person of Jesus Christ. That any person who would receive Christ can be forgiven of their sins and can have eternal life. See, ultimately, what's going on is sin. Jesus said that the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. Satan is that thief, and we see it unfolding right here. And you and I might think, well, this is just a located, like a, a small area, maybe in the, you know, the Persian area, Iran. No, 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 no. It's all the way from Iran to Spain. This is the empire. So when the word goes out, this is the known world. I mean, this includes Israel. This is everywhere. This is a major problem. Why did, why did Haman hate the Jewish people? Sin. Why did Ahasuerus allow the plan? Sin. And listen very carefully. And I'm not saying that we are annihilator kind of people, but when we look down on another person, we devalue them. That's sin. When there's racial hatred, sin. Ethnic hatred, Sin. Misogyny. Sin. Sin always devalues the worth of others. 
Sin always desanctifies the worth of others. Sin always misses the mark of God's heart. And dare I say that sin will often make the other person the enemy instead of the one that we are called to reach out to to rescue. We're sent with this great news, the gospel. Do you remember what Jesus cried out from the cross? Father, forgive them. I have a really hard time with that, do you? But I want to get there. I want to be like that. Satan comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but Jesus has come to give life abundantly. And listen, you and I, we're probably not staring annihilation in the face the next time we go to work. But that does not mean that our problems are not daunting. Are you facing problems that feel overwhelming? Are you facing problems that give you a sense of staring straight into the darkness? The enemy wants you to fall into despair, to isolate, to retreat, to lose hope. But the God who loves you wants you to turn to him. How often in Scripture do we see where people will look behind them and they see an army? They look to their right and their left and they see what? Nowhere to go. They look in front of them, they see a huge obstacle. God says, look up. Look up. You were never meant to face your problems alone. You're not alone. See, maybe your challenges that you face have been caused by another person. That can happen. Maybe they've been caused by your own sins, but you're not alone. God is with you, and that's the beauty of the church. We're a family of faith. We stand together. And I love how Mordecai and Esther model courage. Chapter 4, verse 1. I read from chapter 3 earlier, didn't I? And I said it was chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. So what does Mordecai do? He begins to fast. The Jewish people across the empire are weeping. Esther learns why Mordecai is fasting, and Mordecai urges Esther, you've got to go to the king and make supplication. Plead before him for your people. There's a big problem, though. And I've often found that when God gives his plans, there seem to be big problems. Have you noticed that as well? But God, how? It's like, I'm God, you're not. Trust me. Here's the problem. If Esther approaches the king without being called, and the king isn't happy to see her, then the king has every right under Persian law to put her to death. He has a staff, and if she walks in, and, 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 the, and the king looks at her, and he's like, <clears throat> and he forgets to raise his staff, the golden scepter, she's done. This is a brutal scene. This is a scary scene. Practical point, when God is working through your life, expect for there to be opposition. If it's all smooth sailing, there's a problem. And if you've been in ministry for any length of time, you understand you're not stepping into a fairy tale, you're stepping into a fight for life. But that fight is not against flesh and blood, it's against principalities and powers. It's against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And there is no greater cause for your life 
than to step into God's call. But it will take courage. So where does courage come from? Number one, fervent prayer. Mordecai fasted. And it seems very likely to me that this also included Mordecai praying fervently. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. When we pray, God moves in power. Where does courage come from? Faith-filled friends. See, I believe that Esther needed Mordecai to encourage. Our God uses his children to encourage us who are faith-filled friends. These are friends who pray with you and for you. They want God's best for your life, and they honor the word of God in their own life. See, there's bad counsel and there's good counsel. You can have friends who will tell you what you want to hear, and it's useless. You can have friends who tell you exactly what's going to make you feel good, and it's completely devoid of biblical wisdom. Or you can have the friends who will tell you what you need to hear, and they're with you at all times. They've got your back. They love the Lord. Those are the kind of people that you want to seek counsel from. What does the proverb say? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. You guys have friends like that? They're good people to have around. They're not looking to shoot you down. They're not sin sniffers. You know what sin sniffers are? They go and analyze every single part of your life just trying to find some sin to call you. Those aren't friends. But if there's something, they're, they're willing to come to you and say, hey, let's get this fixed. Let's do this together. They don't push you away in the process. They put their arm around you in the process. Let's do this together. Courage comes from fervent prayer. Courage comes from faith-filled friends. Verse 10, Esther spoke to Hacketh and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law to put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. And so they told Mordecai Esther's words. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. Yet, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And that is the context of one of the greatest, most encouraging verses in the Bible. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. He prayed fervently. He understood the plan. It required real faith. Remember, this is his daughter as well. And dads, you know how protective you are of your daughters. And he is literally saying, I've got I've to send her into a space, into a place where I have no control. That takes real faith, real courage. 
There's often a massive gap, by the way, between the plan in theory and the plan in reality. But when we step out in faith, God moves. So how does the story end? I love the end of the story. With great wisdom and skill, Esther steps out in faith. And it works well for her. She approaches the king, and through courageous faith and great wisdom and great tact, she reveals, hey, this guy Haman king, your prime minister, he's trying to kill me, and he's trying to kill my family. The king listened. And what Haman was plotting against the Jewish people, he met his own demise. That's their end. And it's easy to read about that right now, isn't it? And go, wow, what a great story. But imagine the emotion. Imagine the fear. Imagine the heartache and everything that goes with it. That's why it takes courage to step out in faith. How does our story end? Will we save an entire nation? Maybe. Maybe not. Only God knows. But listen carefully. God works through our cooperation. So maybe we don't save a nation. Maybe we reach just one life. But it's never just one life, is it? Because if we reach just one person, that's eternity that looks entirely different. Every life is sacred. Every life is of eternal value. There's providence in it all. So think about this. Maybe you are in this place for such a time as this. Maybe God has placed you in that person's life for such a time as this. Maybe God has given you knowledge so that you can intercede in prayer. Maybe God has given you that position so that you can stand up for those in need. Maybe God has given you that friendship so that you can point them to God. Maybe God has called you to be their parent so that you can pray for them and love them and bring them back to the Lord. I believe this. God wants to show himself strong through you. It takes fervent prayer. It takes faith-filled friends. And when we listen to the Lord, and when we step out in faith, maybe we don't see how God is moving, but God will always move in power when we pray and step out in courageous faith. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful that you don't call us to be the ones with the power to accomplish your will. You call us to trust you, to walk in cooperation with you, to do what you're calling us to do. And each one of us here, Lord, you have given us spheres of influence. You gave Mordecai a sphere of influence, and it was in Esther's life. You gave Esther a sphere of influence, and it was in the king's life. And remarkably, through these two people whose lives began in captivity, you used them to save a nation and through that nation to bring the Savior of the world. Lord, help us to realize that we can't see the full scope of your plan. You show us what's enough to step out, but I pray that you would give each of us the courage to do just that, to step out in courage, to walk in love, to point people to Christ. Please fill us with your Holy Spirit that you would be glorified in us. Father, I pray if there are any here who have not made the decision to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That's the first step in walking in God's will. Because you want people to be forgiven of their sins. You want people to be restored to a right relationship with you. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would be working in their heart right now. 
whether they're in this room or they're watching online, that you will open their eyes to your love for them, to their need to be saved from their sins. And if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, God loves you. That's why Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That's why he rose again from the dead. We don't have to earn salvation because God has already done all the work. So if you have never made that decision to give your life to Jesus, but you want to be forgiven of your sins, you want to have eternal life, today is the day of salvation, and I want you to do something simple. I want you to raise up your hand. And by raising up your hand, you're saying, I, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that he rose again from the dead, and I am ready to give my life to him. If that's you, lift up your hand and lift it up high. Amen. I'd like everybody, including the one who raised their hand, to repeat this prayer after me. Dear Heavenly Father, I confess that I have sinned. And I know that my sin has separated me from you. But I also understand that I can be forgiven by the death of Jesus on the cross. So I invite you into my life. I turn away from my sin so that I can live for you by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.